Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and I'm just so glad you're here. This podcast is designed to dig below the surface and to hold space for meaningful conversations. We're going to talk about life and love and basically everything in between. This is a place where done is better than perfect, where quality triumphs quantity, and where you can really just come as you are. So go ahead and leave that Superman cape of having it all together at the door because life is freaking messy. Don't I know it, y'all? Now, not only are we going to be real, we're going to have fun too. Scout's honor. I promise you this. I will find any excuse to bring up Beyonce or the latest episode of The Bachelorette. So if you're a new friend, you are so welcome. And before we get started, pause and make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective Podcast on iTunes so that each week when a new episode drops, it'll download straight to those devices. And if you're an old friend, um, welcome back. Hi there. I already know you're all subscribed and good to go, but would you do me a quick favor? Hop on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and written review. I would be incredibly grateful for that. Now, I used to feel like all weird and awkward about asking you to do this, but then I listened to Oprah's podcast and even she asks her listeners to do it. In the podcast world, those subscribes and ratings and reviews really, really help us. So thank you in advance. You are the best. Finally, if something stands out to you in this episode, find me on Instagram at The Refined Woman or my podcast specific account at The Refined Collective and send me a message. I would absolutely love to hear from you. All right, let's go ahead and get to it. She kept going until she looked good on paper, but it didn't really feel good in real life. Mary said something along those lines in our interview today, and I just keep going back to that. Man, how often in our lives do we just strive to be the thing we think we should be, the thing that other people expect us to be, the thing we think will make us happy because of what we see on social media or on TV or in the movies, I love that because it's so honest, because how human is it to want the thing and try to fit the bill and then you fit the bill and you feel like you are trapped and suffocating. I loved my conversation with Mary Morantz and you're probably like, okay, Kat, who is Mary? Well, I'm so, so glad you asked. Mary is an incredible woman. She is from a single wide trailer in rural West Virginia and went from there to the halls of Yale Law School to starting a incredibly lucrative photography business to now being a first time author. Mary's story is one of remembering our roots while turning our faces to the sky. From growing up in that trailer, Mary has known what it is to feel broken and disqualified because of the muddy scars leaving smudged fingerprints across our lives. Her book, Dirt, is a story of healing. With gut-wrenching honesty and hard-won wisdom, Mary shares her story for anyone who has ever walked into the world and felt like their scars were still on display, showing that you are braver, better, and more empathetic for what you have survived. And she said something a few times in our chat about how she wrote this book for the woman in the room that seems like they are the most put-together 
dotting their I's, crossing their T's. She said, I wrote this book for that person because everyone has a freaking story and you never know where someone has come from. And walking into a room feeling like you have to feel perfect is suffocating. And y'all don't, I know that feeling. So without rambling too much more at y'all, let's go ahead and get into my lovely conversation with author Mary Morantz. Welcome to another episode of the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris. And today we have the lovely Mary Morantz. Welcome, Mary. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. And I feel like we, you know, we've talked about this before. Like I was trying to figure out if we have not actually or have met in person, but I feel like we have, or maybe I just feel like we are best friends from following (laughs) you online. I know. It's so, I feel like we have to have, have to have had, I can't speak. So (laughs) I feel like we've had to have met or at least in passing because in another life, you and I were both wedding photographers and totally in that world and I was at, in Las Vegas every year for WPPI for years, and I feel like we've had to at least been at the same party yeah. or event or something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like WPPI is kind of like a metaphor for Vegas itself, where it's like you, <laughs> you're you're like lost in like a maze, but you are also just running into people all the time. So. I feel like we did, but in those, you know, crazy conferences, it's like 15 seconds while oh my you're just going on like up the escalator, down the escalator kind totally. of thing. Totally. And I was, when I was going, so WPPI for anyone listening, that's like, what the heck? So <laughs> it's a, it, it was, is, I don't even know if it still goes on a yearly photographer conference where gosh, thousands and thousands of photographers from all the world would come together for like an expo. But it was also, there were always workshops and photo shoots and networking parties. And so I worked for a photographer for years and I would produce all of his shoots. So always Vegas for me was like a week long of like insane hours, total yeah. exhaustion, <laughs> also trying to like go have fun too. Um, so I always had like a love hate with the Vegas trips because I was working my tail off and yeah. also wanting to like hang out with friends. And it was and then you come home and inevitably get sick, like the totally. WPPI sickness. Yes. Yeah, every, <laughs> sure. every year. Um, so before we kind of get into where you're at now, um, I feel like for so long, like I knew you, I was like, oh, I know Mary, like she is a photographer and she shoots weddings and then they have some online courses and just reading about your story and what you've shared in the last few years. And now your book dirt that's coming out. I feel like your story is one that just reminds me, you know, never really know a person. Yeah. <laughs> you oh, never yeah, know totally. where someone's coming from. And I see your story and I just saw you as like Mary the wedding photographer. Like mm, Yeah. Yeah. How did so I want to know how did you get here today? And I know that's a loaded question, but <laughs> maybe we can even start before it's like before your childhood. Like how did you get from being a photographer to pivoting into what you're doing now? Yeah. You know, honestly, like I 
have felt my whole life, like the ultimate destination for me, at least, you know, on earth, on on this side of heaven was that I knew I was being called to be a writer. Even from a very young Mm. age, I was five. The first time I was like, I'm going to be a writer someday. There was where I grew up in rural West Virginia, about 45 minutes away from us. And on the way to some of our family's houses, you drove past Perlesse Buck in her homestead where she was born. And she's a Pulitzer Prize and Nobel Prize winning author of The Good Earth. Mm-hmm. And here she is from this like tiny little house and like farm, like that's more like on the farmland side of West Virginia. And um, there's like this little plaque, like I said, birthplace of Perlesse Buck. And I just felt like a couple of things. One, it felt like man, she's from where I'm from. And like, Mm. if she can do it, maybe I can do it too. And also though, I remember just specifically feeling like how cool it would be to not only be a writer. I don't even know if I knew the word author at that point, but to be an author, not just an author, but an author who told stories that brought honor to West Virginia or, or that through being an author, it brought honor to where I was from. And so I really truly feel like some combination of both just seeing her as an example. And then also, you know, I write about this in dirt, um, I think when you grow up uh, in this single wide trailer, and if you're Mm. looking for a visual, you can kind of, you know, Google the book dirt and the trailer I grew up in, the actual trailer is the cover of the book, which we could talk about really going into right there of like this thing that used to bring so much shame is now like front and center on the cover of this book. You know, I think now when I talk back about like, I grew up in a single wide trailer in rural West Virginia and then went to Yale Law School and like lived happily ever after. Like it can Mm. sound like this romantic version where you hear like fiddles playing and like, (laughs) you know, a a swelling October sky moment happens. And it, you know, in some ways it is. And and, and the book does have those kind of moments, but when you're in it, when you're there, when there's Mm. the smell of mildew on your clothes or rain is pouring through the ceiling or there's, you know, animal droppings in the carpet, or you have to know where to hopscotch so you don't fall through the floor. Um, I think it was imperative to me that I believed that there was more to this story as just kind of a survival technique. And I would really, you know, with crystal clear clarity, remember God speaking to me and saying, this is going to make sense one day. That I'm going to use this. I'm going to put words to it. This is muddy and it's hard and it's not what you wished for. And you wish you had somebody else's story, but like, I'm not done writing. And this very humble start is going to lead the way to, I mean, at the time I thought it was about like awesome things happening to me, but through the course of this, it's become more about using that, my story, you know, that whole saying of like, you've been given this mountain to show other people can be moved. And so, mm. yeah, that's kind of where it started is like zero to 18. I grew up in the single wide trailer, you know, the old wood stove that kind of like shot flames out and singed the pink panther and, you know, fluffs of insulation hanging down because the ceiling was leaky. The roof was caving in. Like there's a saying that goes something like the person who knows what a swollen ceiling looks like right before it caves in. Those are my people. Mm. And like, there are going to be people listening who are like, yes, I totally know what like drywall or plaster or whatever it is looks like right before it's going to completely crumble. So it was, it was visceral. It was all five senses of hard for sure. Yeah. So let's just like be in that for a minute. And if you can just like connect to that, that girl's heart, like you growing up single white trailer, just mildew, fear, shame, like what was her dream? 
Like what? I mean, we you we just talked for like an hour and a half um, for me being on your podcast. And one thing we talked about is just like how we can have these like big God dreams, but mm. that God's dreams are always bigger than ours. But like if you would have told her back then that you would be writing a book and you would have a successful business and you'd be married would she even believe that was she even (laughs) dreaming for that or like where was she at like who was the you like let's say 17 18 years old in that moment Hmm. I think one of the biggest things that um that girl was dreaming for and the book dirt is actually divided into two parts and the first part is the girl in the trailer and then there's the girl after the trailer and I think the girl in the trailer The biggest thing at the time she was dreaming for was a real house with a real roof. Um, And there's actually one of my favorite passages in the whole book is playing on this like personification of a blueprint. Mm -hmm. And it's talking about like there once was a blueprint who dreamed of being a real house. Every day she would draw and redraw her shapes, you know, wishing for like perfect circles where oblong shapes took place, wishing it was still a his and her vanity instead of the one sink that had taken up residence in her home because my, my mom left when I was young. And so, you know, it talks about like moving load-bearing walls and adding on extensions and second floors and third floors to a foundation that was already shaky and and talks about like she got really good at closing doors and finding these staircases that had far too much of a relief for most people to want to climb. And so it talks about all these things this blueprint is doing to try to change her story, wishing for something more innate, wishing for something grander. And it says... She kept going until she looked good on paper, but it never made her feel more real. Mm. And I think that that's kind of like that really summarizes what I wanted at the time. That was like the thing that that girl wanted the most. Like I had a friend growing up who had, I always say like she lived not more than five miles away in an entire world away at the same time. Like she had the two story really nice, probably looks like any house in any suburb in the country. Like they had the really nice house. And I realized I spent a lot of my life wishing for her blueprint, the plans that had been laid for her life. And it's really hard to trust the design and trust the plan when you're in the midst of it. And you just don't see the beauty taking shape and what the final product will look like. So I think that that was first and foremost, is I wanted a real house, I think, to go along with that. I wanted to be married and probably, you know, I mean, I was a, I was a child of the 80s. So a lot of my mm-hmm. versions of success were defined by television shows from mm-hmm. the 80s. So I wanted to live, there's a part of me that wanted to live in Connecticut in a nice big white house because of uh, who's the boss? Angela Bauer. I wanted a golden retriever because of Comet on Full House, you know. And so um, you start to hang out at home, you know, by yourself or what have you, because my dad was working, my mom had left. And I started to get these pictures in my head of what the good life looked like, either from television or from that friend and her family. And so I wanted that. I wanted their life. I didn't want mine. I didn't want my story. I don't want this muddy story, and this mildewy trailer. I want something TV worthy. Mm. For sure. And so when you when you kind of unpack then, you know, you go from there to going to Yale, getting into law school, and then you've had this very successful from the outside looking in, my perception of you is that you've had a very successful, a very lucrative business. Mm. And what I'm curious about all of that is was Yale what you really wanted? Or did you feel like I need to do this? I'm like, I'm proving myself. I'm chasing this thing. 
was your path what you wanted or did you feel like I just have to run as fast as I can to achieve this Hmm. TV like reality? Yeah. I mean, in continuing our conversation where you were on my show, I feel like it's both and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not, it's not, it wasn't either. Or I think there was a part of me, a big part of me who always, always wanted to go to law school. Like I literally would put on my grandma's Sunday school Mm -hmm. suits and turn on like the people's court or Perry Mason, (laughs) Matlock, whatever. And, um, would watch the shows and try to like use that to study the law, which is PS, not the real law. (laughs) (laughs) Law and order is not going to teach you the real law. And I think, you know, like we would take these like aptitude tests when we were like seventh grade, it was called like pops or something like that. And it would test on like the things you were naturally gifted or had an inclination to be. And I was like off the charts, off the charts for being a lawyer or a judge Mm -hmm. or a writer or a photographer or an interior designer, which is really funny because, you know, if you count me decorating our 10 year fixer upper project as <laughs> interior design. Like I've checked every box, which is interesting, except for judge. Although I can be judgy. No, I'm just um, and so I feel like I always wanted to do that. And I thought that's where I was headed. But was that shaped by the fact that it would be a successful professional career and had the like potential of getting me out? Of course. And I think for me, Um, the Yale thing in particular, like really caught me by surprise without getting too off track. Whenever it was time to study for the LSATs, which is the law schools, laws, I don't even know what it stands for. It's an aptitude (laughs) test for law school. I think that's three of the, (laughs) three of the four as is something scholastic, maybe, you know, I ended up scoring really high on it, which I had done like, I don't know, three practice tests or something. I didn't take a course. I didn't have, you know, their entire companies devoted to helping families who can afford it, get their kids into law schools, into good law schools. I didn't have any of that. I had a workbook and a couple practice tests. And so um, when I got those scores, suddenly it was like, well, you know, I need to think about where I'm applying. And so there's a really interesting arc in the book where like my dad is like pushing me throughout this whole first part of my life. He's bringing home workbooks when I'm four so that I can be prepared for kindergarten. And by the time he did, he had me do so many workbooks that by the time I started kindergarten, I was at a fifth grade math and a sixth grade reading level. So he was like all about like me getting out, me being set up for success, where getting out meant going to WVU, uh, which is West Virginia University. Um, And then there becomes this tension where suddenly I start to turn my eyes out of the state. And so where he was the loudest voice in the room going, hey, go to WVU, go big, you know, in terms of going to school for college. Now he was the loudest voice in the room being like, whoa, 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 like, let's rein this back in. Let's look, what's wrong with WVU law school, which nothing, there's nothing wrong with them. But I suddenly kind of had this like, hey, I, I have these scores. I have these grades. I can at least see what happens. Wow. And this is getting very long, but the short version is based on that, my my new dream school was Georgetown and I got in early acceptance to there and I thought I was done to the point that like I had put in like financial aid and housing and everywhere. And I thought that I had my school all set. And then like six months later, at the very last minute, I get an acceptance letter from Yale, which is the number one law school in the country, wow. kind of Willy Wonka's golden ticket. And it's sort of the kind of like, it's an offer you can't refuse, yeah. you know, like if you get in there, you're going to go. Wow. And so it was very, very last minute. And and the big kicker of all of this is I didn't see that for myself, even with this new like stretched list of applications. It was actually my boyfriend slash friend who sent that in on my behalf. What? That yeah. sounds like a movie. 
I know. <laughs> Maybe it will be. We don't know. Maybe it will be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then walk me through, you get to Yale and then what? Like what happens post Yale? What happens? And obviously there's so much more in your life than just your professional career, but what happened from Yale on? I think the like practical answer is I had gotten these two offers at law firms in New York and London. They were for six figures. They were, they had bonuses and signing benefits and moving budgets and all of this. And I had witnessed in the, you go, the way it works is the summer before you go summer at a law firm. And Mm -hmm. I split my summer between London and New York and I watched junior associates sleeping under their desks. Wow. Um, And they would say things like, when you have to cancel your vacation, the firm is so great, they'll reimburse you. And I was like, if you think that's a bonus, we have a problem. Um, and what I was witnessing, you know, they they court you hard. Like we yeah. got, Justin was my fiance at the time. So they were courting him as well. Um, we got taken to spam a lot. We got taken to these fancy restaurants. They closed down the London eye and had like a cocktail hour for us. They, um, had like VIP tickets to an opera at the London tower. Like they were hardcore courting. And meanwhile, I'm looking behind at like what the one year ahead version of me would look like and they're sleeping under their desks. And so I started to say like, listen, I can either spend a hundred hours a week being away from my new fiance, soon to be husband and never getting to see him all in the name of like having the right Upper East Side apartment and the right uh-huh. private schools, or we can go build a life together where we get to maximize the the most amount of time together and you know spend our lives together and build something with our four hands. And so we decided to start the business. I always say we you know, decided to leap and the net would appear without a penny to our name or a clue <laughs> what we were doing. We decided to start a photography business in the fall of 2006, about two years before the housing bubble burst. Great timing. Um, yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was wonderful. But you know, what's funny is like weddings were fairly insulated in that case. Yeah. yeah. And we had in just a very short time built a very thriving you know, we were sort of like, we positioned ourselves more in the high end and like high end people were still doing okay, I guess. And so we did not have any problems. We just kind of kept on chugging along. And so we did, we did 15 years of building that business and it was a very, very lucrative, very successful business. And then kind of, again, like my heart said to me, like, we can stay here in this place of just continuing on, or we can do the next place that you feel like you're being called. And so for me, the the more deep answer, if that's the practical answer, the deep answer is in each of those cases, I feel like it was a decision to lean into significance and not settling instead of just what the world says success looks like as a way of honoring the sacrifice that my dad made for me to work so hard to make sure that I could get out. So, you know, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with success. Obviously I'm a business person. I'm a businesswoman. I have a business brain. I'm all about growing things successfully but not at the the cost of just it's a safe life or you're settling for what's comfortable. Right. So each time, each time we've sort of leapt and the net would appear, it's because we felt like we were being called somewhere different. And it's sort of not having a life defined by being safe. This episode of the Refined Collective Podcast is brought to you by my very own free guide for single women, six tips to activate your dating life. Raise your hand if dating as a woman of faith in today's swipe right, swipe left culture has ever felt like a total struggle fest. Or maybe being single in our culture today feels overwhelming, lonely, discouraging, frustrating. And maybe if you're being really honest, it can even feel hopeless. 
Listen, single gal to single gal, I totally get it. But did you know that doing the same thing over and over again while expecting different results is known as the insanity cycle? Friend, it is time to walk into a freeing, exciting, and purpose-filled season of singleness. It's time to activate your dating life. I created a free guide for you, and by free, I mean zero dollars, called Six Tips to Activate Your Dating Life to equip you to shake things up in your season of singleness. You can grab it right now at bit.ly slash TRW dating tips. Now you will walk away knowing number one, the biggest mindset shift that will transform how you show up in your dating life. Number two, I'm going to teach you how to get unstuck in your dating life. And three, I will show you the number one thing you can start doing today that will radically change your season of singleness. And finally, the three things I wish someone would have told me 10 years ago about dating. You don't have to wander around for years like I did, insecure, uncertain, and discouraged about your dating or lack thereof life. So if any of this resonates with you, pause and go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash T-R-W dating tips and grab your free guide. Again, that's bit.ly slash T-R-W dating tips. All right, let's get back to it. So did you ever use your law degree? Did you... (laughs) Like after you I, graduated, I use it all the time in our business, and yeah. I use it, you know, in negotiating like the totally. book contract. Yeah. No, I never became a lawyer, and and honestly, by my first semester of law school, I had decided I didn't want to be a lawyer anyway because, actually, even before starting law school, let me start over. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a law professor, oh. and after my first semester of law school, even that, I was like, mm, maybe not because. My experience was that my teachers in undergrad and my master's program, we were like, they were like my mentors and they loved teaching and we were like kind of friends and they would pour into my life. Whereas in law school, because there's such a pressure, especially at that level to publish, it's like publish or perish. Basically it became kind of very transactional where it's like you research for my next paper and I'll write you a recommendation letter for the Supreme Court clerkship, you know? Um, So, and there's certainly exceptions to that. But it just sort of gave me a good taste from the student perspective that like, that was not going to be what I loved about teaching. Mm. And so I did get to carry both my law degree and my love of teaching into, you know, what our business looked like with the Mm. online courses. It just, it was different than what I thought it would be. Yeah. So why did you decide to finish if you knew in your first year Mm. that you didn't want to necessarily use it in the traditional sense? That's a great question. Because that's that's like a lot of money, you know? It's like a lot of time. I have one of my girlfriends is a lawyer here in New York City, and she just had to have eye surgery because of all of the hours doing case studies in college. She saw double vision for two years. Yeah. And I was yeah. like... It was nothing to have like 300 pages that? of homework. <laughs> yeah. So what made uh, you want well, to finish if you're like, I don't even know if I'm going to use this? So I'll give you a love given practical and then deep answer. So the practical answer is this, not very many people know this. Yale law is once you get in, the getting in is the really, really hard part. They uh, only, my year, I think they only took like 180, 190 people out of probably, I don't know, 10,000 that applied or something like that. Um, and, and however many applied to law school, you know, generally who didn't have a friend <laughs> send it to their, in on their behalf. So 
it's really hard to get into Yale, but it's pass fail once you're in. Mm. So, you know, you can make it as hard, exactly. You can make it as hard or as easy as you want. And like some, you know, you can get like an honors or like a high pass, but you're not going to fail. Like it's, it's pass fail. And the, the mythology of the school is nobody's ever failed. Um, one guy like apparently freaked out during his final and they gave him a withdrawal of the class instead of failing. So it's, you can, you know, once you're in, it's really easy to see it through and, and finish it. And so that's the practical answer. And then the deeper answer is where we can start to talk about and get into all the things that it made me feel in terms of worth and Mm -hmm. identity. And like, if I finish, I get to take this, you know, pedigree with me wherever I go. Mm -hmm. And so that's probably, you know, at that point, once you're in, you don't want to feel like you're, um, I don't know, wasting the opportunity, I guess, but also I will forever be a Yale law grad. And that's connected me to wedding clients who, you know, were lawyers or who went there for undergrad or went there for law school um, who maybe felt a little uncomfortable about that until they realized that I had also been, you know, gone to school there. That's connected me to an alumni network. That's connected me to people not messing with my contract. Yeah, <laughs> I thought your contracts are like ironclad. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, there was a really funny exchange we had early in our business where it was the bride's father and he was just being really, really intense with the negotiation and like firing these rapid fire questions back and forth. And every single time I had an answer, had an answer, had an answer. And he was like, well, what if we did this, this, and this, and it would only be this. And I was like, well, that's unfortunate because we don't have any packages that low. And he just like, there was just this moment of like respect, you know, it was like, okay, you're hired kind of thing. Um, so we've just never had a problem with like our contracts or, or, or standing our own in business. Um, but the true, the, the real answer was, um, and is to this day is that I feel something, you know, about worth or identity when that comes up and it's something I've owned and I've acknowledged, like you're putting too much stock in that you're making too much of a, an idol or a crutch out of that. You're making that too important. Um, but that's, that's, if we're just getting real yeah, and getting honest, totally. that, that's a big part is like, yeah. why, why wouldn't I want to get, you know, get that pedigree if I can? Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me in a way of, I played tennis in college. My whole goal, my whole life, I knew the only way we would ever be able to afford for me to go to school is if I got a full ride scholarship and mm. I, I got it. And it was to a good D1 school and I got really injured and I was in a really difficult dynamic with an abusive coach. And I ended up walking away two and a half years in and I was number one on the team. I was team captain. And it was one of those decisions that I know in hindsight, timing is everything, but I felt like I have to leave this. This is, there's so much injustice. Mm -hmm. And so I left in the middle of the year and it honestly, it probably took like five or so years, but I don't really, I feel like I really don't believe in regret because every opportunity is an opportunity to grow if we choose it to be. Mm. But I look back on that moment and I'm like, I wish I would have stayed. There's something about seeing something through to the end. And yeah. even if there's something like, oh, like my worth is tied into it. I think there can be like, it's like a both and, which has been so much of our conversation of, Mm -hmm. I look back at that. I'm like, I wish I could say that I stayed for the four years, you know, whether that was 
to puff up my ego or to show myself that I could have stayed for the whole time or whatever it was. But I do think there is something there's, there's a muscle built within us when we, when we stay a part of something, even when it doesn't feel good, or even when we can't see the short or long-term benefit, but saying I made a commitment and I'm going to see it through to the end. Um, so I think regardless, it's incredible that you you finished it and you went through it to the end. And um, so my next question is, so then you're like, well, let's start a photography business. Like, <laughs> when did photography get in there? Like, did you yeah. know how to take pictures? Like, did you want to or yeah, why photography? I walked into a coffee shop after a match.com wink, wink situation and (laughs) met a brown eyed photographer who was holding a camera. (laughs) And we, uh, Justin and I started dating the summer after my first year of law school. And I think it was like our third date that I was like redoing his contracts. (laughs) So it was was like a really, you met him on match.com. I did. Yeah. Hello, success story. Everybody listen, online dating works. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it did in 2004. Um, It was very new then. So, you know, we told everybody we met in a coffee shop. Met on Match.com on Tuesday. We had coffee on Thursday. We went hiking on Sunday. And that was like, it it happened really, really fast for us. And yeah, like right away, I had seen in his photos, I'd never seen photos like that. I was like, I, I didn't know they could even be that way. I didn't know you could take photo. I'd only seen like the staged, you know, everybody gathers around the bride and it goes in an eight by 10 frame, like the, the very, very traditional 1980s portrait. And so like, there were these like candid moments and these black and whites and you could see the movement. And I was like, I've, I didn't even know this was like allowed. This is incredible. And so I, um, I think I've also got a lot of like entrepreneurial, uh, that I come by honest, like woven into me. So like you know, my family goes back eight generations of loggers, but like really what that means is each one of them had to run a small business and my dad's business always struggled. And so there was this drive in me that I would have a business one day and it would be successful. And so I was like, cool, like I can help you make this a successful business. He was just getting started. It just graduated college. And we spent two more years of me finishing law school, but I was doing like, I was helping him with all the marketing and the strategizing. And we were like upping our prices and getting new branding. And like I said, when it was time to graduate, it was like, we can either keep building this or I can go, you know, do a find and replace on like the name of a a corporation that's merging with another corporation for 11 hours only to have them change it back the next day. (laughs) You know, so that was like my options. And ironically, um, when I was about to accept one of the offers in New York, it was going to be to do prenups and divorces. And I left that to go do wedding photography. Wow. So that's pretty, I feel like that's very symbolic for that choice. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about, I mean, I just, what I love about your story is it's not linear. Mm. And I think even just, you know, your story of, you know, growing up in a trailer to Yale Law student to now author. It's like, I could just look at that part of your story and it just looks like this pretty, like upward arrow of trajectory. Mm. But in me, I feel like it's not fair to look at your story like that because like, why does your past have to be the bad part or like why does the beginning of your story have to be the shame Mm. part that you ran from and you say something in your book that I just love and resonate with so much and would love for you to unpack you say to say that's not me anymore well that's where you'd be wrong 
Everything I am begins and returns to that trailer. And everywhere I go, whoever else it is that I've become along the way, I carry that trailer with me. For the, for me, this life dug out and rebuilt from the ground up has turned out to be much less a story about any kind of success than it is a song of redemption, a reconciliation with the roots that grew me, a melody born out of the muddiest parts of my life. Because as for me and my story, it always started with dirt. Mm. And I hear you say that. And I think so much of it's like we're trying to outrun our past. And obviously, I 100% believe in healing our past and moving through trauma. I mean, if there's anyone who believes that it is me. But I love and I'm curious about what you're saying about because I feel like I could read that sentence. I carry that trailer with me of, oh, she must not have dealt with her past as much. Mm -hmm. But that's that doesn't seem to be what you're saying, huh? No, that's a great, great question and a great way of asking that. Um, it's like sort of this idea of are, when you say you're carrying it, is it something heavy that you're carrying? Mm-hmm. Is it a burden or is it like this like precious thing that you're like carrying carefully across the kitchen so you don't break it kind of an idea? Um, and for me, or, or just something like, you know, like there's that poem, like I, I carry you in my heart. Um that gets read at like every wedding ever. <laughs> um, I feel like I should know it by heart and I do not. Totally. Um, but it's, I carry you, I carry you in my heart. And um, it's the second one. And so um, a lot of like, you know, I, I begin and I return to that trailer. The imagery created there also parallels this theme of dirt that is woven throughout. My editor, one of the biggest compliments she gave me is like, I I am always continually shocked and surprised by how you're going to weave in that element of dirt in each mm-hmm. chapter. And yet I'm also blown away by how unforced it is. Mm-hmm. And so you sometimes like you have to, we're actually playing around with releasing an Easter egg version of the book because sometimes it's like you really have to be looking to find it or you, you we say it so fast you miss it. Um, but this, the idea, like the, the sort of like original concept of it always started with dirt is also a play on the idea that we were created from dust. So we all sort of started with dirt. We all sort of started from the ground and God scooped up some dust and breathed life into it. And so I would no more try to run away from the dust in my life that represents the creation of God than I would try to run away from the mud in my story that represents the genesis of my story. Mm. Which I super just made up right now in this episode, and I kind of want to like replay and say in every episode. Yes, girl, um, <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, and so I think that it's it's this. Um, so, like you said, so many of us have these parts of our story that we're like, man, if I can just buy enough pearls and argyle, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or whatever your version of that is, and I can have the nice house, and I can have the SUV and the golden retrievers and the, you know, 2.7 kids or whatever the case is. If I can have that Angela Bauer, who's the boss, full house life, mm-hmm. um, then I can walk into rooms and people won't be able to smell the mildew on me that I still smell on myself anytime I walk in. So I, I said, when I was writing this book, I'm writing it for the most put together person in the room, the person you would never guess the hard story she came from. And so we spend so much time trying to run from that smelly trailer or that small apartment or that parent with addiction or that broken marriage or that illness or whatever the case may be we spend, or that, you know, maybe it's something like anorexia or bulimia, whatever. Like we spend so much time trying to run away from these parts of us. We think would make other people turn their faces from us in shame, sympathy on our behalf. Like, oh, I'll look away from you because I don't want to look at you in your most embarrassing moment. And my mission with this book 
is to not only come along and lift up your chin and say, head up, but also lift up the chin of every single person that you interact when you're telling your story. So you can reach out and lift up their chin and say, look me in the eye. I am going to tell you, this is my story and it does not shame me. It does not make me feel weak. It does not make me feel disqualified. It does not make me feel broken. I am telling you this story because you're going to see somewhere in there yourself and whatever part of you you feel like you have to keep hidden, maybe that'll give you a little bit of permission to own that too. And so, yeah, I feel like it's like we, when we can say like, man, I came from this dirt and guess what? This dirt made me kinder and more empathetic and stronger and grittier and I have more tenacity because of it it made me everything I am then it becomes a superpower not a a weakness 2020 is in full swing and I don't know about you but I am here for it I'm also here human to human to ask you for support help me friend to help you The Refine Collective podcast is one of my most favorite projects that I have ever worked on in my career, but it is definitely a labor of love. We have quite a bit of hard cost each month from software and subscription services to my team who edit and produce the episodes to licensing music and running logistics for all things Refined Collective. Now, because of that, I want to invite you, yes, you, to join our Patreon community. Patreon is this incredible platform that helps listeners financially support their favorite podcasts. You can support the Refined Collective podcast for as little as $5 a month. And we made a bunch of fun different tiers that are jam-packed with free goodies and VIP access to our newest content. And you will be notified before anyone else about our upcoming live events. I'll also be going to you first to find out what questions you want answered and what topics you want covered moving forward. So in the midst of a wild year, I want to ask you, friend, if you'd be willing to link arms with my team and me and sharing some of the load and helping make the Refined Collective podcast the best it can possibly be. So if you want to learn more or sign up today, head on over to patreon.com slash the Refined Collective. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Refined Collective. Thank you so, so much for being a part of this community. Even as you're saying all this and you're talking about your past, like, I can't help but think about your dad. Mm, You know, like you said, your mom left when you were young and your dad ran his own business and was probably working really, really, really hard to make this life a reality for you. And then giving you workbooks to be at a fifth grade level in kindergarten. And so like, I just wondered, I think I think I thought this as well as I'm writing my own book of like, now that I'm telling my story, I'm also telling a bunch of other people's story that didn't ask for their story to be made public. Yeah. And that's hard. Yeah. And how can I be honest and still honorable. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I'm curious about that aspect of your story and your relationship with your dad and what that's looked like. Yeah. Oh man, that's such a good question because I'll say um, recently I did like a, a, a Q&A. Our um, PR team was like putting together like a sample Q&A they could send out. And so they had their writer do a Q&A and she said to me, one of the things that it just made me like, I literally did the like fist pump the sky thing. She said, you know, I left your book, not hating anybody, Mm -hmm. not being mad at anybody. And like that for me represents such a 
like a big leap of healing because draft one of my book could not have been more different than draft two of my book. And um, draft two reaches this place, including, you know, like you said, like I'm including my mom's story as well. And, you know, kind of coming to terms with that she did leave, but by the, you know, the end we're finding reconciliation and redemption and healing and like just the, just draft one of me would not have even like believed that was possible. And so I always say that there's draft one and then there's the draft that you will hold in your hands. And the gap between the two is this, but God turning of the page, like this stitching together of, of wounds you never thought could heal. And so when I was thinking about telling a story where it's like, I want to give honor to my dad, but whoa, hold up. I also want to give honor to my mom who I've always had like even a harder relationship with. Mm. I thought about three things. Um, one of them was I said, how do I do this in a way where I am giving honor and telling the truth about my story that I'm not feeling like that has to be like handcuffed or, you know, a hand put over my mouth that I can't tell my story. But number two, how do I do that in a way that's fair? Um, that it's like, there's a great adage in writing that says your book should go from true to truer to truest. Mm -hmm. And so true is like, I'm telling you something that happened to me. I experienced it. I perceived it. It happened. It's real. We can't keep going on pretending like it didn't. It's true. And truer goes, okay, cool. But like, that was your perception and it's, it's your perception and no one can take that away. But what else was going on? What's the story behind the story? What's the picture behind the picture? What else were the factors that led to them being the way that they are, them leaving or what have you. And then truest is what does your story look like in light of God, in light of God, what God says it is, in light of what God says matters about you or, or, or what God asks of you. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about those things and then I'm thinking about, let me be fair to me. Let me be fair to my family. And then number three is, but most important to me actually of the three, let me be fair to every person who reads this book. And in some ways is the 18 year old version of me, whatever age mm -hmm. they are, the girl who still feels very much in the trailer. And I could wash over parts of my story where I could not lean into redemption. I could not be fair or I could gloss over and not tell the truth about my story. And in either of those cases, I either a make them feel like, so your story wasn't really that hard. So maybe the kind of grace and forgiveness you're talking about is for only like easy story people like you, not for, you don't know how hard my story was. Or B, it doesn't challenge them to at least entertain the possibility of there being more to the story and 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 reaching that place of reconciliation. So I kind of just went through that. Like, what's fair to me? What's fair to my family? What's fair, most of all, to the reader? Yeah, yeah. I always go back to for myself when I I resonate so much with honesty, and I have given like authors, speakers, pastors, a lot of crap in the past for like, why aren't they being honest? Or I feel like, man, she could have really gone there. But mm. then she took the safe route. And now that I've had the chance to share my own story, I realize, holy cow, how much cojones it takes to be honest with your story to yeah. strangers and also be honorable to your family and to the reader and even just recognize my experience is valid. I'm one of six kids and we all grew up in the same house and what I felt was real, but all of us had different experiences. Yeah. And um, I okay that we all had different experiences. And I love that idea of like true, truer, truest. And that I never thought about that until 
my editor challenged me with like, well, what's best for the reader? And I'm like, I don't care what's best for me. This is my story. Like, (laughs) I want to tell it the way I want to. But to and I but to be outward focused, even as we're like sharing some of the most like intimate moments of our lives. And gosh, I'm just I'm so grateful that you are sharing your story. And, and even just like you said, I wrote this book for the most put together woman in the room. I feel like that's how I have always viewed you. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's it. We get really good at it. We get really, really convincing because here's the thing. If we don't, if we can't pull off that mat, like that charade, that mask, that performance, then it means for us, it's one or the other extreme. Then it means it's the difference of walking in with my pearls and my popped collar, like we talked about Mm -hmm. uh, in in our episode, or or it's um, me walking in and feeling like the girl in the oversized sweatshirt, Mm -hmm. smelling like the you know vanilla perfume, trying to cover up the mildew, and everybody's seeing through that wherever I try to go, I don't belong. And so we do that because we believe that that's the only version of us that people will ever accept. And I love what you were talking about, you know, with keeping in mind that you are writing for somebody outside of yourself, because to just tell your story in a bubble is a diary, you know, and that, or it's therapy and that's a good thing and it's an important thing. But when you're ready to put it in a book and put it out into the world, I think a really good litmus test is what does this story uniquely give me in terms of a message that I can go out and help change hearts mm-hmm. with and help, help yeah. like legitimately help change other people's lives. Yeah. And if there's like two messages that come out of this book, I would say number one is that there's no amount of running where you can outrun you. You will, like I carry that trailer with me because I honor it and I revere it, but because there's also no amount of running where mm-hmm. that stops being my experience. Mm-hmm. And number two is, so, you know, the first one is like, you can't achieve for your worth. There's no amount of success that's going to make you feel worthy if you don't go back and deal with that stuff that made you feel empty in the first place or broken in the first place. And then the second part of that is just to give you hope that there is redemption and healing and reconciliation with people. Grace can do that. It can heal relationships and wounds you never thought could be healed. And that's my like lived experience through writing the book and ultimately where the book goes in that final draft. So I think there's going to be two like big messages that people yeah. get hit with. Yeah. That's yeah. so good. And just, you know, kind of, you know, closing, I think back to what you said at the beginning of the interview of one of the earliest things you wanted to be was an author. Hmm. And now, I mean, literally decades, <laughs> decades later. We won't later, say how many. <laughs> we yeah. won't say how many. Um, two decades later, yeah. <laughs> on her 21st birthday. That's right. <laughs> your book is coming out. And I just think of you, you have on your Instagram stories today. You talk about like slow growth equals strong roots. Mm. And I wonder... Over the years, when you're doing all of these different things, at any point, did that dream seem to die? Mm. Did it seem impossible? Did it seem like, oh, that was just like a young thing? Like, that's not who I am anymore. And then what was it like to what is it like to now actually be like, wow, this thing that's been there since I since as young as I can remember Mm. is coming to fruition. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing that I will say, yes, is the short answer like a million times. (laughs) It was like, seriously, like get moving on this. Cause I, uh, I just turned 40 in May. So to have that dream starting at five and to not really get moving on it till, um, 39, getting ready to be 40, that's a long time to sit on a dream. It's certainly not, um, it doesn't disqualify it or, or if somebody's 
listening and they are, they have been sitting on a dream that long, that doesn't, it's not too late. That does not rule it out. But I would say that it felt like it had died or it felt like it was not going to happen about a million times when I watched friends of mine who, you know, like I kind of tend, tended to do the thing as most of us do, where it's like, I'll do it when it's perfect or I'll do it when it's time or I'll do it when I'm there yet, wherever there is. Um, and I watched people do the proposal, get an agent, write the thing, write the draft, edit the draft, you know, design the book, launch the book beyond their second books. And I still hadn't made any progress. And then, you know, I got an agent and I got the chance to do a proposal and I signed a two-year contract with my agent and it was about to expire. That's honestly what got me moving. Like I let two years go by while all I had to do was put together a proposal and we could have moved forward. And I just let that paralysis of perfection Mm -hmm. and that like, you know, one of the biggest lessons I learned in writing a book is I truly believe this is embarrassing to say in in hindsight, because like who thinks this way, but I truly thought that when it was time to write a book, you had to sit down and write it, start to finish in one draft. Mm -hmm. And then people would look at it. Publishers would look at it and either go, yep, you have what it takes or no, you don't. It truly, honestly, not no amount of hyperbole here never occurred to me that we get drafts. We get drafts and drafts and drafts, as many drafts as it takes in life and in writing a book to make it where you want it to be. Mm -hmm. So I do feel like I almost felt like I was going to lose it a bunch of times, but I will say this. I think God's timing is, is perfect. I think God's timing is, you know, we, we were talking about in your episode with me, like, Oh, waiting and Oh, I don't know. And like, even if it doesn't happen, but what I know now is that God had a plan for this book coming out when I was 40, because I know if I had released this book when I was 30 or right after law school, it would have been a much angrier book. It would have been a first draft book. It would not have gotten to that place of where it is now. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's so... I just feel like the older I get and I'm just like, everything's about timing. Mm. everything is about timing whether it's dating or relationships you can meet the right person at the wrong time or the wrong person at the right time or you know you made that connection with that person just at the perfect time I just feel like it sounds so cliche but like God's timing really is everything and yeah I I wanted to write my book about sexless in the city six years ago. Hmm. And I was running and jumping, knocking on doors, going through hoops, pitching my idea. I couldn't get a second look if my life depended on it. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm not supposed to write a book and I'll just let that. It was almost like I let it die. It was a half-baked story because I was still in my scab. It wasn't even a scar yet. Mm. It was like, oh, I'm still bleeding here. And it took another six years. And then out of the blue, it literally felt like out of nowhere, publishers were reaching out to me. And I remember something that my, my aunt said to me, and I've said it a thousand times on the podcast, but she says, there's no such thing as overnight success, which is why I love your slow growth equals strong roots. Mm. There's nothing that happens all of a sudden. She says, all of our suddenlies are from a lifetime of like showing up faithfully and with discipline and integrity in our everyday Mm. lives. And so when the blessing comes, when the breakthrough comes, when your book dirt comes out, like it is ready. You are ready and the world is ready for it. So I just feel like your story is for such a time as this. And I cannot wait for the world to hear your story and what you're up to. And 
I'm just so grateful we got to chat and I got to know you more. And now we can, we're officially friends. <laughs> officially. Yes. I feel the same way. I was saying to Justin in between our break, I was like, oh, we're going to be friends Aww, for sure. <laughs> so yeah. Well, tell us where we can keep up with you, buy your book, stay in touch, yeah. all the things. Yes. Yeah, so Instagram is Mary Marantz, M-A-R-Y-M-A-R-A-N-T-Z. And that's also for Facebook and, and Twitter, but I'm on there far less, I would say. Um, and then to find the book, um, the the regular address for that is thebookdirt.com. So it's T-H-E-B-O-O-K-D-I-R-T.com. But we've actually put together a special link for your audience in particular. So it's going to be thebookdirt.com forward slash refined. And that is going to get them some special bonuses when they order the book. And um, it's also going to get them in on the, we're doing a fall coaching that's kicking off in October where we walk through what it looks like to own these muddy stories Mm. um, as well as walking through the book. So they can check out everything there. They can see some excerpts of the book, like listen to some samples, see what people are saying, and also uh, grab their copy if they want from thebookdirt.com slash refined. Oh my gosh. I feel like seriously so special. (laughs) That's so cool. I've never had someone make a unique link for their book for my my tribe. Um, That's so exciting. I literally cannot wait to open that link and check it out. Well, Mary, thank you so much for your time and thank you for your heart. And we will chat soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Refined Collective Podcast. If you are new here, maybe you've listened for a long time and there's topics, questions, comments, concerns that you have about what we're up to, follow us on Instagram, The Refined Woman. Send me a DM and I will get back to you and let me know what you want to hear about. Let me know what you want to talk about. And I would love to make that happen for you. Have such a fabulous day. (laughs) Bye.